York, this is Democracy Now! Genocides are never declared in advance. But this court has the benefit of the past 13 weeks of evidence that shows incontrovertibly a pattern of conduct and related intention that justifies a plausible claim of genocidal acts. Is Israel committing genocide in Gaza? That's the question today before the International Court of Justice in The Hague, which has begun two days of arguments in South Africa's historic genocide case against Israel. We'll air excerpts and go to Johannesburg and Jerusalem for response. Then an exclusive new report by The Guardian reveals how carbon emissions from Israel's war on Gaza will have an immense effect on the climate crisis. We'll speak with Guardian reporter Nina Lakani and Hadil Ikhmaiz, head of the Climate Change Office at the Palestinian Environmental Quality Authority. There are three predicted scenarios for the uh, climate in Palestine, and all the three scenarios predicted that the change of climate is going to be unprecedented and uh, endangerly and negatively impacted the uh, water security and food security. With occupation, it, act- it exacerbates the problem of climate change and make it worse for the future generations. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The International Court of Justice in The Hague has begun hearing two days of arguments in South Africa's historic genocide case against Israel. South Africa's accused Israel of violating the 1948 U.N. Genocide Convention, saying its three-month assault on Gaza is being conducted with the intent to bring about the destruction of Palestinians as a group. South Africa is outlining its case today. Israel will defend itself on Friday. During today's hearing, attorneys for the South African government laid out what they described as Israel's genocidal intent. Israel has a genocidal intent against the Palestinians in Gaza. That is evident from the way in which Israel's military attack is being conducted. Israel's special genocidal intent is rooted in the belief that, in fact, the enemy is not just the military wing of Hamas, or indeed Hamas generally, but is embedded in the fabric of Palestinian life in Gaza. We'll have more on the genocide hearing after headlines. An Israeli airstrike hit an ambulance in central Gaza Wednesday, killing two patients and four members of the Palestine Red Crescent Society. The aid group said, quote, our colleagues were intentionally targeted while inside an ambulance clearly marked with the Red Crescent emblem, unquote. Another Israeli attack near the entrance to the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Hospital killed eight people and wounded over 30. On Wednesday, the head of the World Health Organization, Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, called on Israel to allow more aid into Gaza. Delivering humanitarian aid in Gaza continues to face nearly insurmountable challenges. Intense bombardment, restrictions on movement, fuel shortages and interrupted communications make it impossible for WHO and our partners to reach those in need. We have the supplies, the teams, and the plans in place. What we don't have is access. 
Five armed men wearing military uniforms have reportedly seized an oil tanker in the Gulf of Oman. This comes as tensions have been soaring for weeks in the Red Sea. On Wednesday, the U.N. Security Council passed a resolution calling for Yemen's Houthi forces to stop attacking ships in the Red Sea. The vote came a day after U.S. and British forces shot down 21 drones and missiles fired by the Houthis, who vowed to continue attacks until Israel halts its assault on Gaza. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis squared off at a CNN-hosted debate in Iowa ahead of the state's January 15th caucus. Republican frontrunner Donald Trump, who's yet to participate in a primary debate, had been invited to attend but opted to take part in a Fox News town hall instead. DeSantis criticized Haley for supporting sending more money in arms to Ukraine. She supports this $106 billion that they're trying to get through Congress. Where's some of that money going? They've done tens of billions of dollars to pay salaries for Ukrainian government bureaucrats. They've paid pensions for Ukrainian retirees with your tax dollars. We've got homeless veterans. We have all these problems. This is the U.N. way of thinking that we're somehow globalists and we have unlimited resources to do. You know, I think here's the problem. You can take the ambassador out of the United Nations, but you can't take the United Nations out of the ambassador. Nikki Haley questioned Ron DeSantis about whether he's ready to run the country. The best way to tell about a candidate is to see how they've run a, their campaign. He has blown through one hundred and fifty million dollars. I don't even know how you do that. Through his campaign, he has nothing to show for it. He spent more money on private planes than he has on commercials trying to get Iowans to vote for him. If you can't manage a campaign, how are you going to manage a country? Hours before the debate, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie dropped out of the race. He was caught on a hot mic saying she's going to get smoked in an apparent reference to Haley. Christie also predicted DeSantis would drop out after Iowa. In other Trump news, closing arguments are scheduled for today in New York in the civil fraud case brought by New York Attorney General Letitia James against Donald Trump. On Wednesday, the judge in the case struck down a request by Trump to deliver his own closing statement because the former president's legal team refused to abide by the judge's restrictions not to turn his remarks into a campaign speech. On Capitol Hill, far-right Republicans are pushing back against House Speaker Mike Johnson after he reached a bipartisan $1.59 trillion spending deal with Democratic Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. On Wednesday, a dozen members of the House Freedom Caucus joined Democrats to block an unrelated bill to show their opposition to Johnson's deal. Meanwhile, a pair of House committees have voted to endorse a report recommending Hunter Biden, President Biden's son, be held in contempt of Congress. On Wednesday, Hunter Biden made a surprise appearance at a House Oversight Committee meeting and offered to testify publicly. But Republicans refuse. They've been insisting on questioning him in private. In other House news, Republican lawmakers held their first impeachment hearing focused on Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas in Ecuador. Police have arrested at least 333 people in a nationwide crackdown after President Daniel Noboa declared a state of emergency due to a surge in violence by drug cartels. During an interview Wednesday, Noboa said Ecuador is now in a state of war. 
schools across Ecuador will remain shut down until at least Friday. Authorities in South Korea have confirmed the recent stabbing of opposition leader Lee Jae-myung was a politically motivated attack. Lee Jae-myung, who survived the assassination attempt, ran for president in 2022 and narrowly lost to conservative Yoon Suk-yeol. Police said the attacker wanted to prevent him from running for president again in 2027. This is Busan Police Commissioner Wu Chol-mun. The suspect stated that he held a grudge that the victim, Lee Jae-myung, was not properly punished, and he wanted to prevent the victim from becoming president, stop him from giving nominations to certain groups and taking a majority of seats in the upcoming general election. That is why he decided to kill the victim. In health news, wastewater testing shows the U.S. is in its greatest COVID-19 surge since Omicron, making it the second largest surge of the pandemic. Around 1,500 people in the U.S. are still dying from COVID every week. Public health experts say two of the main reasons are waning immunity and not enough people accessing treatments and vaccinations. Rates of infection are up globally as well. The World Health Organization reports 10,000 COVID deaths were recorded in December, while hospitalizations increase in dozens of countries. In Spain, authorities have reissued face mask mandates in health facilities. It's a basic and minimum measure, which we learned from the pandemic. And that is, when we have an upward trend, the first thing we need to do is protect the most vulnerable people, people who have some sort of infection that needs to be contained. And the method that is most scientifically endorsed is the mask. In Ohio, Republican House legislators voted Wednesday to overturn Republican Governor Mike DeWine's veto of legislation that would ban gender-affirming health care for transgender youth and bar trans athletes from playing on school sports teams. Three-fifths of the Ohio Senate must also vote to override DeWine's veto for the bill to become law. The ACLU of Ohio slammed state Republicans, saying, quote, this state-sponsored vendetta against some of Ohio's most vulnerable young people is beyond cruel, they said. In related news, two transgender women vying for seats in the Ohio House of Representatives have been challenged for not disclosing their birth names on nominating petitions. Both women said they were unaware of the rule, but that they would have complied despite the harmful nature of the requirement. One of the women, Ariane Childry, said of the rule, quote, having to use your dead name is horrible. It's an attack on who we are, unquote. Vanessa Joy, who's appealing the decision last week to disqualify her, also warned that transgender people should not be forced to share their dead names due to safety concerns. Here in New York, lawsuits filed by prisoners at the Great Meadow Correctional Facility accuse guards of abuse and torture. Two men, 44-year-old Charles Wright and 32-year-old Eugene Taylor, say they were brutally beaten by guards who also took them to another facility where they were waterboarded. Both men say they were falsely accused of disciplinary infractions after the event. A separate lawsuit filed by 44 prisoners says guards inflicted physical and psychological abuse on prisoners during an October lockdown, including violently attacking them. Great Meadow Prison is located in Comstock, about 200 miles north of New York City.
in North Carolina. Ronnie Long was awarded an historic $25 million settlement for his wrongful conviction and 44-year-long imprisonment. Long is a black man. He was accused of raping a white woman by an all-white jury in 1976. He was exonerated and released in 2020 after a court ruled his due process rights were violated, citing extreme and continuous police misconduct, which included concealing lab evidence that showed Long was not linked to the crime scene. Ronnie Long has put some funds from a previous settlement towards efforts to reform the criminal justice system. And the family of the late Eddie Bernice Johnson, the trailblazing black Congress member from Texas, has blamed a Dallas rehabilitation facility for her death and say they'll file a lawsuit for net medical neglect. Her family says the spine infection that led to her death December 31st developed following back surgery after staff at the Baylor Scott and White Institute left her lying in her own feces. Eddie Bernice Johnson was the first registered nurse elected to Congress, where she served for three decades. On Tuesday, loved ones and community members gathered for her funeral at Concord Church in Dallas. Among those who paid their respects were lawmakers who were inspired and guided by Johnson. This is Royce West, Texas state senator. What she made certain of is that Issues concerning health care, accessible health care, that we worked on those issues, higher education, education, historically underutilized businesses, building coalitions based on interests, not based on the color of one's skin, gender, or political affiliation. And she often told us, just because you speak loud, don't mean you're going to be able to get anything done. Her life is a manifestation of that. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. And I'm Nermeen Sheikh. Welcome to our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. South Africa has accused Israel of acts of genocide against Palestinians in opening remarks today at a historic hearing at the International Court of Justice in The Hague. At the hearing, South Africa demanded an emergency suspension of Israel's aerial and ground assault on Gaza, which it said was intended at bringing about, quote, the destruction of the population of the territory. In a detailed 84-page document launching the case late last year, South Africa alleged that Israel has demonstrated that intent. The International Court of Justice is hearing South Africa's arguments today and will hear Israel's response to the allegations on Friday. South Africa's Justice Minister, Ronald Lamola, addressed the court at the opening of the hearing. Madam President and distinguished members of the court, it is an honor for me to stand here in front of you on behalf of the Republic of South Africa on this exceptional case. In extending our hands across the, li- the miles to the people of Palestine, we do so in full knowledge that we are part of a humanity that is at one. These were the words of our founding president, Nelson Mandela. This is the spirit in which South Africa acceded to the convention on the prevention and punishment of crime of genocide in 1998. This is the spirit in which we approach this court as a contracting party to the convention. This is a commitment to owe to the people of Palestine 
and Israelis alike. As previously mentioned, the violence and the destruction in Palestine and Israel did not begin on the 7th of October 2023. The Palestinians have experienced systematic oppression and violence for the last 76 years. That was South Africa's Justice Minister Ronald Lamola addressing the court at the opening of the hearing. South African lawyer Adila Hassam was next. She began by citing Israel's bombing campaign in Gaza in her opening argument. For the past 96 days, Israel has subjected Gaza to what has been described as one of the heaviest conventional bombing campaigns in the history of modern warfare. Palestinians in Gaza are being killed by Israeli weaponry and bombs from air, land, and sea. They are also at immediate risk of death by starvation, dehydration, and disease as a result of the ongoing siege by Israel, the destruction of Palestinian towns, the insufficient aid being allowed through to the Palestinian population, and the impossibility of distributing this limited aid while bombs fall. This conduct renders essentials to life unobtainable. South African lawyer Adila Hassim continued by laying out what South Africa says was a series of genocidal acts, including mass killing, displacement, denial of humanitarian aid, and more. She began on the mass killing of Palestinians in Gaza. The first genocidal act committed by Israel is the mass killing of Palestinians in Gaza, in violation of Article 2A of the Genocide Convention. As the UN Secretary General explained five weeks ago, the level of Israel's killing is so extensive that nowhere is safe in Gaza. As I stand before you today, 23,210 Palestinians have been killed by Israeli forces during the sustained attacks over the last three months. At least 70% of whom are believed to be women and children. Some 7,000 Palestinians are still missing, presumed dead under the rubble. Palestinians in Gaza are subjected to relentless bombing wherever they go. They are killed in their homes, in places where they seek shelter, in hospitals, in schools, in mosques, in churches, and as they try to find food and water for their families. They have been killed if they failed to evacuate in the places to which they have fled, and even while they attempted to flee along Israeli-declared safe routes. The level of killing is so extensive that those whose bodies are found are buried in mass graves, often unidentified. In the first three weeks alone, following 7 October, Israel deployed 6,000 bombs per week, at least 200 times 
it has deployed 2,000-pound bombs in southern areas of Palestine designated as safe. These bombs have also decimated the north, including refugee camps. 2,000-pound bombs are some of the biggest and most destructive bombs available. They are dropped by lethal fighter jets that are used to strike targets on the ground by one of the world's most resourced armies. South African lawyer Adila Hassan concluded her remarks by outlining the need for an emergency suspension of Israel's assault on Gaza. All of these acts, individually and collectively, form a calculated pattern of conduct by Israel, indicating a genocidal intent. This intent is evident from Israel's conduct in specially targeting Palestinians living in Gaza, using weaponry that causes large-scale homicidal destruction, as well as targeting snipe, targeted sniping of civilians, designating safe zones for Palestinians to seek refuge, and then bombing these, depriving Palestinians in Gaza of basic needs, food, water, health care, fuel, sanitation, and communications, destroying social infrastructure, homes, schools, mosques, churches, hospitals, and killing, seriously injuring, and leaving large numbers of children orphaned. Genocides are never declared in advance. But this court has the benefit of the past 13 weeks of evidence that shows incontrovertibly a pattern of conduct and related intention that justifies a plausible claim of genocidal acts. In the Gambia-Myanmar case, this court did not hesitate to impose provisional measures in relation to allegations that Myanmar was committing genocidal acts against the Rohingya within the Rakhine state. The facts before the court today are sadly even more stark and like the Gambia-Myanmar case, deserve and demand this court's intervention. Every day, there is mounting irreparable loss of life, property, dignity, and humanity for the Palestinian people. Our news feeds show graphic images of suffering that has become unbearable to watch. Nothing will stop the suffering except an order from this court. Without an indication of provisional measures, the atrocities will continue, with the Israeli Defense Force indicating that it intends pursuing this course of action for at least a year. South African lawyer Adila Hassam. She was followed by attorney Tembeka Ngokaitobi, who outlined what South Africa said was clear evidence of genocidal intent by Israel. The intentional failure of the government of Israel to condemn, prevent, and punish such genocidal incitement 
constitutes in itself a grave violation of the Genocide Convention. We should recall, Madam President, that in Article 1 of the Convention, Israel confirmed that genocide, whether committed in time of peace or in time of war, is a crime under international law. And it undertook to prevent and to punish it as such. This failure to prevent, condemn, and punish such speech by the government has served to normalize genocidal rhetoric and extreme danger for Palestinians within Israeli society. As M.K. Moshe Sada from the Likud party has said, the government's own attorneys share his views that Palestinians in Gaza must be destroyed. I quote, you go anywhere and they tell you to destroy them. In the kibbutz, they tell you to destroy them. My friends at the state attorney's office who fought with me on political issues in debate said to me, it is clear that we need to destroy all Gazans. Destroy all Gazans. Israel is aware of its destruction of Palestinian life and infrastructure. Despite this knowledge, it has maintained and indeed intensified its military activity in Gaza. Excerpts from South Africa's arguments at the historic hearing at the International Court of Justice in The Hague accusing Israel of acts of genocide. When we come back, we go to Johannesburg and Jerusalem for response. When all the dark clouds roll away And the sun begins to shine I see my freedom from across the way And it comes right in on time When it shines New Day by the South African singer Miriam Makeba. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermin Sheikh. We're joined now by two guests to discuss South Africa's historic genocide case against Israel at the International Court of Justice in The Hague. Today marked the first hearing out of two days of arguments, with South Africa outlining its case that Israel has violated the 1948 UN Genocide Convention, saying its three-month assault on Gaza is being conducted with the intent to bring about the destruction of Palestinians as a group. In Jerusalem, Maha Abdallah is a Palestinian genocide scholar, a graduate teaching assistant and Ph.D. researcher at the Faculty of Law at the University of Antwerp. And joining us from Johannesburg, South Africa, Kajo Ramjatan Kio. 
South African human rights lawyer, directs the Africa program of the International Commission of Jurists, which is dedicated to defending human rights and the rule of law worldwide. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Let's begin in South Africa with Kaja. Um, if you could start off by talking about the significance um, of today's hearing that finished just before we went to air. Um, what is the um, International Court of Justice? Uh, how unusual is it to bring a kind of case like this? If you could take it from there. Yes, sure. Hi, everybody. Um, so to talk about the hearing and the International Court of Justice, the International Court of Justice is a world court which adjudicates issues and cases between states. So it is different from the International Criminal Court in that way, where the ICJ, where the ICC would prosecute individuals on international um, criminal concerns. The International Court of Justice only deals with issues between state parties. Um, and this is the reason why South Africa has filed this case before the International Court of Justice. Um, and it was it was a pretty remarkable hearing. Um, you've said already about the historical significance of this hearing. There have been previous cases at the International Court of Justice dealing with genocide, but those previous cases have not attracted as much attention and interest as this particular case. Uh, so, Kajal, could you explain um, uh, how often it's been the case that uh, a, a case has been brought to the ICJ by a country that is not one of the parties involved in the conflict? Because one thinks most recently of uh, the case of Russia and Ukraine, which Ukraine brought, yeah. or, in fact, the first genocide case that was heard at the International Court of Justice, uh, which, of course, had to do with uh, Srebrenica, the uh, genocide of uh, Bosnians in the Yugoslavia war. Yes. Um, so, so primarily, um, the the court can deal with any any issues. Um, issues of genocide, of course, have there've not been many cases of genocide brought before the court. Um, in this particular case, however, both South Africa and Israel are members of the UN. They've both signed on to the genocide convention, and as a result of their membership of the UN and signature of the Genocide Convention may be held responsible and have responsibilities under this convention. Um, and this is the reason which established South Africa's grounds for filing the case. Um, th there have been other cases brought against member states who are not um, who have not signed the Genocide Convention, those cases are more difficult. It is more difficult in particular to try and enforce any findings or to establish um, jurisdiction of the court in order to look into those cases. But the court may still make preliminary findings, may make other findings which are and can be very useful in trying to protect individuals who are being affected by genocide and actions connected to genocide. And so if you could begin, Kajal, just by explaining, of course, the, the decision, uh, as everyone has said, is likely to take years on the case itself, on the merits. Uh, what are the provisional measures that South Africa is calling for in the interim? Yes. So essentially what South Africa is calling for is a ceasefire in Gaza. Um, they've 
they've set this out in a number of ways. Um, they're asking for um, the blockade in Gaza to, to cease immediately. They're asking for the seizure of uh, the bombings and the the actions which are causing the death of killing of Palestinians, destruction of their homes, expulsion, displacement, blockade on food, water, medical assistance, as well as the imposition of measures preventing Palestinian births by destroying essential health services, which are crucial for the survival of pregnant women and babies. And these are all listed as genocidal actions in the suit. So there's a whole range of actions which they're calling for an immediate seeks on, um, and these are the provisional measures which South Africa seeks at the current time. Mahabdella, you are a Palestinian uh, genocide scholar. Can you explain the significance of this going to the International Court of Justice um, and the, how people are responding in Israel and Palestine? Thank you for having me. This is a historic moment for uh, the Palestinian people in their pursuit for justice and accountability decades after the imposition of uh, a settler colonial and apartheid regime against the Palestinian people that has dispossessed and fragmented the Palestinians without accountability and with near total impunity. So the fact that Israel today stands on trial is very significant, very important. But of course, we recognize the 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 the, the possibilities and the different scenarios that are forthcoming. And uh, the fact that Israel is on trial for the crime of genocide is also significant because as the application of the South Africa uh, before the International Court of Justice uh, states that uh, the, the crime of genocide and the alleged genocidal acts and omissions by the state of Israel are part of a continuum. They do not happen in a vacuum. They're part and parcel of the ongoing Nakba imposed on the Palestinian people. And for that, there needs to be accountability. As for the reactions, unfortunately, I have not yet been able to interact with uh, with many people. The hearing session just finished. But I know that most of us Palestinians, whether in Palestine or in diaspora or in exile, we have been waiting uh, for this moment. And all eyes have been on the ICJ, on the Hague today. And we have been thinking about the Palestinians in Gaza and how they perceive the current hearing sessions more than 90 days after complete devastation, more than 90 days after significant and extreme and severe loss, destruction and pain inflicted on the Palestinians there for the purpose of the destruction of the group. Um, and of course, we think of Palestinians in, in, in exile who have been uh, also mentioned by the South African ambassador in his introductory remarks when he uh, when he spoke about the denial, the, the, the deliberate denial of the Palestinian people's right to self-determination, which includes the right of return for Palestinians in, in refugee camps across the across uh, across the neighboring countries. Uh, so let me just turn, uh, Maha, thank you for that, uh, to uh, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who spoke Wednesday, one before, one day before today's hearing at the International Court of Justice in The Hague, responding to the hearing. I want to make a few points absolutely clear. Israel has no intention of permanently occupying Gaza or displacing its civilian population. Israel is fighting Hamas terrorists, not the Palestinian population. And we are doing so in full compliance with international law. The IDF is doing its utmost to minimize civilian casualties 
while Hamas is doing its utmost to maximize them by using Palestinian civilians as human shields. The IDF urges Palestinian civilians to leave war zones by disseminating leaflets, making phone calls, providing safe passage corridors, while Hamas prevents Palestinians from leaving at gunpoint and often with gunfire. Our goal is to rid Gaza of Hamas terrorists and free our hostages. Once this is achieved, Gaza can be demilitarized and de-radicalized, thereby creating a possibility for a better future for Israel and Palestinians alike. So that was Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Maha, if you could respond uh, to what he said regarding the case that is now ongoing at the International Court of Justice. I think this is a uh, baseless statement and the statements over the past 13 weeks plus and even prior to the 7th of October um, have been genocidal in intent, have uh, you know, showed, showcased how uh, Israeli political leaders, Israeli military leaders have, uh, have the specific intent for aiming for the destruction of the Palestinian people using different means and methods through different uh, policies, practices, laws, military orders. And the fact that there has been uh, an apartheid regime imposed for 75 years, along with a belligerent uh, occupation uh, for 56 years, a blockade and closure on the Gaza Strip, and the incarceration of an entire people as well. These are all precursors and drivers of genocide. And uh, the genocidal statements that we've been hearing since 13 weeks now cannot be simply uh, put aside or disregarded by a simple statement the night before uh, the hearing session start at the ICJ. Could you explain, uh, you know, what do you hope will come out of this, knowing that, uh, of course, a decision uh, may take several years, but there could be these provisional measures that are put in place, even though they're not, in fact, uh, enforceable. The court does not have the capacity to enforce uh, the measures. Um, uh, the most and foremost uh, important uh, thing to come out of this uh, from this application and these proceedings at the moment is for the court to order Israel to stop its aggression, to stop its hostilities, to stop its military operations against the Gaza Strip. And this is particularly important considering the severity, the, uh, the scale and the gravity of, of, of the situation in the Gaza Strip, but also the failure of the international system, of the international community to come to a consensus and to order Israel at the UN Security Council, but also in other spheres, to push it to put an end to this genocidal aggression against the Palestinians. And as you said, the, the merits of the of the case, the, the actual decision of whether there is genocide or not by the court will take years. But for the moment, what is mostly important is, is a need to stop this, uh, this genocidal aggression, to safeguard and to protect whatever is possible to save at this moment of Palestinian life, of Palestinian dignity, and of Palestinian rights. Kanjil Ramjathan Kyo, I wanted to ask you about Hamas. Uh, it is a non-state player here. Um, how does it fit into this decision? And also, because there isn't enforcement, what is the role particularly of the United States, since it sits on the U.N. Security Council, which, of course, is related to um, the International Court of Justice as a U.N. body? Yes. Um, 
The South African legal team set out very clearly the position of Hamas in this particular matter. And um, what they said in, in their submissions was that, was that the International Court of Justice is there to adjudicate matters and cases between states. Hamas is not a state, and therefore Hamas is not part of this application. No claims have been brought against Hamas, and no claims can be brought against Hamas at this particular tribunal. There are other tribunals in which Hamas can be, um, crimes against Hamas can be brought, but this is not the appropriate tribunal for that particular issue. Um, so that deals with the issue of Hamas. Um, talking about the U.S. and their involvement in this case, the U.S., as we know, are longtime friends with Israel. Um, if there is in the event that there is a final decision made by the court and the court makes findings on genocide and genocidal intent against Israel, of course, there is no immediate obligation on Israel to act on these findings, and we don't expect Israel to comply with these findings, uh, which will then lead to the matter being presented to the UN Security Council to try and enforce this compliance. And at that point, with the US being a permanent member of the Security Council, they could, of course, use their veto powers to block any actions against Israel. So that would be a very serious challenge um, related to compliance of any findings of this court. Well, Gajal, apart from the uh, UN Security Council, of course, the person who leads the uh, International Court of Justice of the 15 judges, the president is an American, Joan Donahue, and the vice president is a Russian, Kirill Gavorgian. So if you could say, I mean, ostensibly, the judges are supposed to be impartial. <laughs> but in the most recent case last year with Russia and Ukraine, the only countries to abstain uh, from the vote, which was otherwise 13 people voted for uh, uh, Russia withdrawing from Ukraine, the, the provisional measure, uh, China and Russia were the only two who did not. So if you could say just in terms of precedence, do judges more or less make decisions that coincide with the policies of their countries? Or is it the case that this is an exception? Yeah. Yes. So Judges are supposed to be independent. We expect judges to be independent. Judicial independence is the cornerstone of all democracies. We require judicial independence to be able to support us and support us to claim our rights and to claim our democracies. Um, it's a means, it's a, an, a hugely important means of protection. We've seen previously at the ICJ in the Ukraine v. Russia case, um, both the Russian and the Chinese um, judges um, offered dissenting opinions. Um, we, I would hope, I would very much hope that the American judge, the, the, the president of the court, um, does feel an obligation to be independent, properly and properly independent in this matter. How There is, of course, no guarantee of this. Um, there is very little which can be done in the event of the American judge dissenting, making findings which are not in line with the majority of the court. Um, and this is a prop. This is essentially the, the problem of the International Court of Justice. 
in that it can take on a relatively political slant in the decisions which it issues. And now their terms are up. Uh, the American—she has uh, had a number of positions at the State Department before Joan Donahue—are um, uh, up in February. So they could be up before this decision is, re uh, is released. Is that right, Pedro? Um I, I, I'm not I'm not aware of when her term is up, so I can't really comment on that. But the fact that she's sitting on the issue of provisional measures means that she will have some impact on what happens as the court makes findings on provisional measures. Um, and if, however, the court decides to go into the merits of the case and proceeds with the matter, then she will no longer sit on the case going forward. But we don't know who will replace her. So that's an unknown but it's not guaranteed that there won't be U.S. influence on the case going forward. So, Maha Abdullah, just as we as we wrap up, if you could just give us your final thoughts, your uh, assessment of what the situation is right now in Gaza, uh, what you hope will come out of this. Again, as I mentioned, I hope that this uh, the following the hearing sessions and on the basis of uh, precedent by the very same court where it has issued provisional measures within days or weeks time on, uh, let's say, similar cases, but uh, not entirely alike, that the court will order uh, the state of Israel to stop its aggression, to stop its military operations against the Gaza Strip and its people. Um, the Gaza Strip, uh, as, as uh, as we, we we've seen that uh, there's the, there's the large scale destruction, extensive killings taking place, ongoing and relent relentless uh, bombardment and killings that uh, are taking place. Uh, the, the the catastrophe is so immense that we're unable to to understand or comprehend between the starvation, the dehydration, the lack of uh, medical uh, facilities and accessibility to 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 medical supplies, to to the most basic necessities for life and dignity and for 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 its for for life and survival even uh, together with the fact that it's under a total siege blockade and closure that has intensified since the 7th of October the mass displacement and forcible displacement and transfer of more than 1.5 1.9 million Palestinians uh, into into areas that are also being uh, targeted and bombed by by Israel and its military. All of these require immediate action and immediate action that should not have taken place today or yesterday, but three months ago. So this is, uh, we don't have time, Palestinians in the Gaza Strip and in the entirety of Palestine, we do not have the privilege of time. So this is why the, 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 the court, uh, the proceedings before the court, as rightly stated by South Africa in its application, they are of extreme urgency. So the court must immediately act and respond to the urgent situation, again, against the backdrop of the failure of the international system and the international justice mechanisms, as well as the complicity, the open-ended complicity and support uh, emboldening Israel's action, emboldening Israel's uh, atrocities uh, and, and uh, recurrence and intensification of these violations and grave breaches and international crimes being committed against the Palestinian people. Maha Abdullah, I want to thank you for being with us, Palestinian genocide scholar speaking to us from Jerusalem, and Kajal Ramjatha 
Onkyo, South African human rights lawyer, speaking to us from Johannesburg. Next up, an exclusive report in The Guardian revealing how carbon emissions from Israel's war on Gaza will have an immense effect on the climate crisis. Back in 20 seconds. by Issa Bulos. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermin Sheikh. In an exclusive story this week, The Guardian's climate justice reporter, Nina Lakani, revealed that, quote, the planet warming emissions generated during the first two months of the war in Gaza were greater than the annual carbon footprint of more than 20 of the world's most climate vulnerable nations, end quote. The report is based on new work by researchers in the U.S. and the U.K., and they say even this impact is likely an underestimate. The analysis includes carbon emissions from fuel for aircraft, tanks and other vehicles, as well as emissions from making and exploding bombs, artillery and rockets. It also showed that U.S. cargo planes flying military supplies to Israel accounted for nearly half of all the carbon emissions. For more, we're joined in New York by Nina Lakani, senior climate justice reporter for The Guardian. Her story is headlined, Emissions from Israel's War in Gaza Have Immense Effect on Climate Catastrophe. Also with us in Bethlehem, in the occupied West Bank, is Hadil Ikmaiz, who's featured in the report, is the head of the Climate Change Office at the Palestinian Environmental Quality Authority, their office based in Ramallah. Um, we welcome you both to Democracy Now! Nina Lahani, lay out exactly what you found. Um, so the, the researchers in the UK and US, what they did is it's the first attempt to calculate um, the carbon impact, the greenhouse gas impact of the war in Gaza. So they, they and so information um, about militaries and about war is very hard to come by because um, governments don't release this data themselves. So what they did is for the first 60 days, they looked at all the publicly available information that they could corroborate, um, in, in, including Hamas. Mass rockets, um, the, the air, the air, the air missions, the on, the ground attacks in Gaza by Israel, and they, what they've calculated is like a really conservative estimate of the um, of the of the carbon dioxide emissions just in the first 60 days. Um, what they also did is they looked at sort of um, you know. At, 
gave us a snapshot of the occupation. So they looked at the carbon impact um, of the Hamas tunnels, which have been constructed since 2007, 2008, and Israel's iron wall. Um, and they also um, provided an estimate of the reconstruction costs. So the, the conservative estimate they've used is that 100,000 buildings have been destroyed um, in Gaza so far. And the amount of carbon um, dioxide that will be generated through the reconstruction of those buildings, if that, if that is allowed to go ahead in the coming years. Hadil Ikhmais, you spoke to Nina for this Guardian report and you told her, uh, and I, I'm quoting, among all the problems facing the state of Palestine in the coming decades, climate change is the most immediate and certain. And this has been amplified by the occupation and war on Gaza since the 7th of October. So, Hadil, if you could lay out what were the climate crises that Gaza was confronted with, that Palestine was confronted with, that have now been uh, exacerbated by the this now almost three-month-long war? Well, uh, we've done through the, the last years, before even becoming a party to NAFCCC in 2016, we've made a lot of research and a lot of studies to... Um, find the climate scenarios. And after uh, joining the UNFCCC and uh, uh, ratifying and signing Paris Agreement, Palestine uh, had three uh, uh, very uh, worst, the, the, we call them the, the, the bad, the worst and the worst scenarios of climate action in Palestine uh, regarding the heat waves, uh, the drought, the high uh, unprecedented uh, temperature, uh, the dryness in the uh, in the rainy season, and also all these fluctuate of uh, of fluctuations and the rainfall and the temperatures and the increasing of the uh, um, uh, heat and uh, a warm periods and the decreasing and the um, uh, and the war and the in the in the colder periods. All of this will make a transformation to the way of life the Palestinian from the uh, uh, from securing the water and also the food security. Because Palestine is an agricultural uh, country, which relies in the uh, agriculture sector, mainly the olive and livestock, as uh, the first uh, income. So all these fluctuations and all these climate scenarios will negatively impact the livelihood and the basic needs of the uh, life uh, of livelihood in, in Palestinians in both West Bank and Gaza. And we've done assessment to uh, both uh, the high priority uh, uh, sectors that are vulnerable to the climate climate um, action in both West Bank and Gaza. And those are these are 12 uh, sectors, among them the water and the food security. With occupation, uh, line by line, on the, on the land in the West Bank and Gaza, will exacerbate the problem by making it very difficult to the Palestinians to adapt and to uh, be uh, uh, vulnerable to these uh, changes. For example, the land confiscation, the water resources restriction, the, 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 the abstraction from the groundwater, the zero shares from the surface waters to, to the Palestinians. Hadil, also, Hadil, um, I wanted to, Hadil, I wanted to ask you about the um, impact that comes from Israel's destruction of renewable energy projects in Gaza. Can you explain yes. what they are? 
Yeah, this is true. And this is very, um, we've been working, at, uh, working through the last 10 years on finding energy security resources and water resources from unconventional uh, uh, ways. For example, wastewater treatment, uh, desalination in Gaza, um, a lot of renewable energy, solar panels in order to find another resources to uh, Palestinian in Gaza. But with all these, uh, um, and they are in different shapes. So, for example, there are big projects, small projects, uh, some entrepreneurship, uh, some uh, small uh, projects for small uh, uh, villages or, or neighborhoods. All of these are uh, basically most of them were being distracted from the airstrikes and from the, the war and, uh, and the last bombardment. Uh, uh, among them, one big project from the world, funded from the World Bank and also from the um, uh, Ministry of Finance and 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 uh, and, and Palestine. Uh, most of these uh, uh, solar panels were distracted, um, and also we have another project with the Green Climate Fund, which is the financial arm to the UNFCCC, uh, which is called the Water Banking in in, in North Gaza. Also, uh, we don't know how is the exact damage of this facility because there there is a lack of communication between the technical team in West Bank and Gaza because of of the war under because technical per- persons and colleagues are under war. So we don't know how much is the real uh, uh, damage to these uh, facilities. But all the reports uh, from different organizations, from the WHO, from the UNICEF, from uh, a lot of international organizations, uh, show that there are a lot of facilities that being uh, extremely and mostly damaged because of the airstrikes in different places regarding to water facilities, water pipelines, water uh, um, energy um, units, desalination units, wastewater treatment plants, treatment units. All of them were basically partially or uh, uh, completely distracted by the airstrikes. And all of these things uh, make it very challenging uh, against uh, combating climate change because we need those infrastructure to be able to to uh, to have this um uh, um, adaptive capacity to have uh, water from un- unconventional resources, energy security, uh, also the health sector that's been targeted uh, by by targeting the hospitals and all the uh, main uh, 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 facilities for treatment. Hadil, which, I, I guess- wanted to bring Nina in for the last minute and ask you, we just talked about the international Court of Justice and the case that's been brought before them today. Um, your recent article on Israel's intent to flood Gaza tunnels um, uh, was cited by South Africa in their case today. We just have a minute. Can you talk about this? I mean, I think the targeting, it's, it's, sort of, it's been cited as sort of evidence of the collective punishment. You know, there is no life without water and food and any targeting of water and food resources and supplies, um, as argued by South Africa, is evidence of genocidal intent. Um, and, I, you know, and I think just that article and that's, that work and also the work that um, we're talking about here um, regarding the climate impact, you know, it, it shows that. In this in this situation, the human suffering, the environmental destruction, um, and immediate environmental destruction, and the long term climate impacts are all interrelated. You know, the carbon emissions may seem very small compared to the global emissions, but they will have a direct impact and an indirect impact on on Palestine, on Israel, and all of us globally. And I think that the climate sort of um, the carbon analysis of war is something that really hasn't been thought about. In, um, it's sort of an evolving science and evolving area. But I think as well as the immediate environmental destruction, 
regarding, um, you know, what Hadil's talked about, the, the, the sort of targeting of water and food supplies um, has to be thought as, as, you know, I think the impact on the, on the global climate is something that we should Nina, be thinking about alongside that. We have to leave it there. Nina Lakani with The Guardian and Hadil Ikhmais, head of the Climate Change Office at the Palestinian Environmental Quality Authority. A happy belated birthday to Claudia Bada. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh.